welcome to The Great Books Podcast. Today, we'll talk about The Remains of the Day by Kazuo Ishiguro. I'm your host, John J. Miller of National Review, and you're listening to a production of National Review. Our guest is Laureen Murphy, a professor of English at Hillsdale College. She's podcasted with us many times, discussing works such as Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen, A Journal of the Plague Year by Daniel Defoe, Housekeeping by Marilyn Robinson, and most recently, The Wings of the Dove by Henry James and Villette by Charlotte Bronte. She joins us in the studio as we record from Hillsdale College's campus radio station, WRFH in Michigan. Lorraine, welcome back to the Great Books Podcast. Thank you, John. I'm so happy to be back. Why is The Remains of the Day by Kazuo Ishiguro a great book? Well, I'll give you three reasons. First, it is a work of great artistic beauty, meaning not only that the language is beautiful, which it is, but that the questions or themes at its core are completely integrated with the manner of presentation. So, for example, this is a book that explores the meaning of dignity and the voice that asks that asks the meaning of dignity is is a voice of great dignity. A second reason I'll mention is that it is a tragedy disguised as a perfectly calm and still monologue. And that's kind of a remarkable feat. And the third reason, related to the second, is that it is simply heartbreaking. This voice, the voice of Mr. Stevens that speaks to us, compels our attention, and then he takes us quietly, calmly, right to the core of what it might mean to waste one's life, and it leaves the reader shaken. We're going to talk about all that, the characters, the story, the themes of this novel, a little bit about the author, and of course, the movie that helped make the book famous. But Lorraine, let's start with the book itself and its very first line. The first line of The Remains of the Day is this, quote, it seems increasingly likely that I really will undertake the expedition that has been preoccupying my imagination now for some days, unquote. So, Lorraine, it sounds like we're about to embark on a journey. Who is this narrator, and what's he about to do? His name is Mr. Stevens. In the novel, we never learn his first name. The movie gives him one. He's, he's a butler. He is, has been attached for 30-some years to a great country house in Oxfordshire, and as you can hear from the way he presents his plan, there, there's hesitation, caution, reserve, but there's also this reference to the imagination, and you get this sense of a latent dreaminess. What he's contemplating or imagining is a week's holiday in a motor car, and he's going to drive to Cornwall in the West Country to visit a colleague he's not seen in something like 20 years. So our first person narrator is Stevens the butler. And when the question of a narrator comes up in a novel, we always wonder, is he a reliable narrator? So first of all, Lorraine, what is this literary term, the idea of a reliable narrator, and is he one? A reliable narrator tells us everything that he or she knows, and we can trust what we're told. An unreliable narrator does not necessarily, however, set out to deceive the reader, although that that can happen. But often what you have is a kind of shading into unreliability where the narrator himself doesn't see everything, doesn't, doesn't know himself fully, and that's what we have here. Stevens is an unreliable narrator, not because he's trying to deceive us, but because he himself is somewhat deceived or in denial about everything that he knows and suspects and fears. So we can't take his statements at face value, and uh, it becomes clear as we read 
that one corollary of his reserve and caution um, is that he's suppressing the awareness of memories and experiences that would challenge his sense of his role and his purpose in life, which is very precious to him. The book, The Remains of the Day, was published in 1989. The story is set in Britain in July of 1956. We're going to talk about the journey that Stevens takes in just a moment, but let's talk about where he starts out. He's in Darlington Hall. He's he's a butler at Darlington Hall. What is Darlington Hall? It's a country house outside London, perhaps in Oxfordshire. It's an invented place, but it's based on, of course, many great houses of its kind. And Lord Darlington is also an invented aristocrat, but based on Ishiguro's research into peers and aristocrats in this period between the two world wars. Stevens is the butler there, and that's a position of great importance. It's the highest position among the staff. And in the glory days of Darlington Hall, which are in some ways also the glory days of the end of the British Empire, Stevens had a great deal of responsibility and oversaw many, many employees and uh, just his job is to keep everything running smoothly and to see to everybody's needs. And of course, it's it's a role that kind of requires him to disappear as a self and not have any needs of his own. And he's been exemplary in this role. And so to be a great butler is a really hard task, isn't it? And I have this I have this idea of what a butler does. You know, I, I saw Downton Abbey like the rest of us. And you, you have maybe have an idea of, of, of what a butler does in your imagination. You've seen the movie in movies, but you know, how many of us have really encountered a butler? Tell us more though about this egolessness and this sense of service that you need to bring to that job. The sense of service is really key. Ishiguro has talked about this a lot, how he's really using this, he calls it the myth of the butler, which is known throughout the world as this kind of distinctively English institution. And he's said in interviews that, in a sense, we're all butlers. So he's looking at the role of the butler, and the butler has uh, uh, a distinctive set of responsibilities in a very unique location. Most of us don't serve in these great houses and have never met a butler. But what, what Ishiguro is really trying to talk about is service and the way that most of us live lives of duty and responsibility. We have a role to play. We take it seriously. We invest ourselves in it. And in some sense, we give ourselves to our role, our job, our work, whatever it is, trusting and hoping that what we're doing has some larger significance. But we don't always understand what that larger significance is going to be. Again, it's an act of kind of trust or faith that our service will be put to good ends. And part of the tragedy of Stevens is that his service ends by feeling like a great mistake. Stevens serves Darlington, this great house, and also its proprietor, which for most of his time there was Lord Darlington. There's been an ownership transfer. There's a new owner here in 1956. Who is that? The new owner is an American. His name is Mr. Faraday. A couple of things about that. 1956 was the year of the Suez Canal crisis, and it's a kind of symbolic close to the great power of the British Empire. And after the Second World War, in order to kind of pay for the war, taxes were raised on these aristocrats and noblemen, and many of them, you know, declined in power and could no longer maintain the great houses that they had once owned. They fall into American hands. So that's part of what Ishiguro is representing here. Darlington has 
had a kind of moral and then physical collapse after the war. He's died some three years ago, and Darlington Hall has passed into American hands. The other thing, and there's an element of humor in this, in many ways, very serious and touching novel. This American has a whole different way of dealing with a butler than uh, Stevens is used to, and he finds the American is always trying to banter with him and joke with him. And this is completely uncomfortable to Stevens. He doesn't know how to banter. And like a good butler, he devotes himself very, very hard to learning how to banter and practicing his banter. And it's kind of wryly funny in that way. And banter's like the opposite of the stiff upper lip that you associate with butlers. You know, they're not to speak unless they're spoken to. And even when they're spoken to, they're supposed to be pretty quick about it, right? And exactly. So Mr. Faraday's this American has this completely different approach. And he's the guy who says to Stevens, go on this journey. You've got to get out of the house, he says. That's right. That's right. And Stevens is at first, you know, a little uncomfortable with moving out of that comfort zone, but also as the first sentence reveals, there's a sense in which it captures his imagination to go on this journey. And that, as we learn, is because the person he would like to see Her name was Miss Kenton when she served as housekeeper for many years under Lord Darlington. Now she's Mrs. Ben. She's married, and she's a person who's very, very dear to him, though he does not tell us that directly. There again is that unreliable narrator. And there are two kinds of journeys, really. One is the physical journey toward the West and Miss now, the now Miss is Ben. There's also a journey into the past, and the book is full of flashbacks. Let's start off, though, with Miss Kenton, Mrs. Ben, this is our destination. This is where Stevens is headed. Who is she? Why is he going to go visit her on his time away from Darlington House? Yes, it's a journey through memory as well as through space. And so we have to reconstruct why he wants to visit her as he shares what he remembers. So the first thing he tells us is, I'd like to go visit Mrs. Ben because I've just had a letter from her. Seems she and her husband have separated. And if I could hire her back to Darlington Hall, that would really help to solve some of my staffing problems. We're really short-staffed, and I'd like to hire her back. It would be a great solution, a very practical and professional reason. As he, as he continues on this journey through his memory, though, it becomes clear that Miss Kenton had come to Darlington Hall as a fairly young but well-recommended housekeeper in the early 20s. And they had served together for something like 15 years until 1936 or 1937. And when she first arrived, Miss Kenton rubbed Stevens the wrong way. She was a little too forthright. She stood up for herself in ways he didn't like. But she also did things like bringing flowers into his study to brighten up his room, uh, teasing him a little bit wanting to know him, seeking to know how he spent his leisure time. And so gradually they became very close colleagues, really comparable in terms of accomplishment and professionalism. And also it becomes clear, very close friends. And more than that too, right? They have this great chemistry and she becomes a kind of secret love interest of Stevens. Yes. They have a very wonderful, quiet, sort of simmering chemistry that I'll just say it was very well captured, I think, in the film with Emma Thompson and Anthony Hopkins. But it's there in the book as well. You don't need the film. I would urge everyone to read the book. It's a chemistry that Stevens himself will not say directly, I was attracted to her. I wanted to reach out to her. Rather, we see her reaching out to him and we see 
the interest that this poses for him and the challenge that it poses. And we see him wanting to respond more openly and suppressing that response. But there's a wonderful scene where she finds him reading a book and she wants to know what he's reading and he doesn't want to show her the book. And of course, this sparks her interest even further. And she insists and insists and ends up prying the book out of his hands. Turns out it's a romance. He's reading a romance novel. She finds that very revealing and he's he's flustered he explains to the reader, I read this for vocabulary. I need to extend the range of my vocabulary. He'll admit nothing directly, but he has this elaborate facade put up that shows us this, this secret yearning that he can't quite confront for love. And he suppresses these feelings, and he thinks he has to do it because that's what butlers do. That's right. And that's part of the irony and the tragedy is that He suppresses these feelings not because he wants to live a sad, dismal life, but because he feels that his role is so important and doesn't have a way to understand himself. He really almost doesn't have a self outside of that role. So the idea of stepping outside of the life that he has defined for himself is just so threatening and challenging that he can't quite bring himself to do it. So he's going to go meet her again after many years, and as he journeys toward her physically and then thinks about her in his own memory, he's almost falling in love with her again, isn't he? Absolutely. So he's reviewing these memories as he continues on this journey, and along the way, he meets different figures in the present who force him in different ways to confront the reality of his past, the reality of Lord Darlington's appeasement or Nazi sympathies and things that really challenge him, the reality of the war and the loss that England has suffered in the war. Threaded through that is a review of the ways that Miss Kenton also tried to challenge him, to show him truths that were uncomfortable and unsettling at the time, and you sense this mounting hope, you know, this hesitant dream or imagination that perhaps this will be his chance to put one thing right if he can regain that connection with Miss Kenton. Now, we got to talk about Lord Darlington. You just mentioned the fact that in the 1930s, he was an appeaser. He, he favored appeasement with Germany before World War II. Tell us more, though, about Lord Darlington. Who is he? What kind of boss is he? And how does he get involved in these kinds of politics in the 1930s? He's presented as a very thoughtful employer and as being himself in some ways kind of a version of Stevens in aristocratic form. That is a man of caution and reserve and great dignity. And Ishiguro has described as he's researching the novel, gaining a degree of sympathy. I think he originally conceived Darlington as a little bit uh, more of a sinister character And he becomes maybe something more of a pathetic character, and that's because of his upbringing. So what Ishiguro is examining here, and I think it's a very searching and um, relevant examination, is he's examining this whole English ideal of gentlemanly conduct and honor. And that's the worldview in which Lord Darlington has been raised. So Lord Darlington has had German friends before the First World War. He's looked at the Treaty of Versailles. He's seen how extremely punitive it was. And he feels that this is not the right way, that an English gentleman should deal with his his foe. Once he's beaten, he's beaten. Don't um, don't kick him when he's, while he's down. 
And this develops over several years into a desire, which Lord Darlington shared with you know, any number of um, nobles and statesmen, Neville Chamberlain, for example, a desire to secure peace and a belief, a naive but idealistic belief, that it would be possible to secure peace in Europe with Germany. Like, let's not push it any further. And it's just Lord Darlington is gradually led down this path, and Stevens, with his absolute trust in his master, kind of has to keep ignoring warning signs, such as the dismissal of Jewish servants for no reason other than they're Jewish. Stevens doesn't like it, but he bows his head and submits because that is his role, and he has this trust in his master. So are we, in fact, sympathetic at least a little bit with D- Lord Darlington? Is he just is he just misguided, has some wrong ideas? We don't like the anti-Semitism of dismissing the Jewish servants, of course. Is he actually a Nazi? Is he pro-German, or is he just—is he making mistakes? He's making mistakes. They're grievous mistakes. They have to do with his upbringing and his— complete devotion to this ideal of gentlemanly conduct. And I think Ishiguro is looking back at that, the sort of myth of the English character, which is also a real part of the English character, but it's one that's familiar to most of us. And there's a degree of nostalgia, if you like, or respect for the sincerity with which that ideal of honor was held. At the same time, though, through Lord Darlington, Ishiguro is showing us how out of step this is with the modern world. Because of his upbringing and his idealism, Darlington has no idea. He's out of his depth. He has no idea the ruthlessness and the evil uh, that he's up against, and he's being used as a pawn. It's sad, and we pity him, I think, but we pity him with a degree of fear and, and criticism, and we're trying to honestly own up to the fact that this didn't work. Does Stevens then start to think that he was a pawn in the sense that he was used by a man who's who is not worthy of his own service? In a sense, although the way that Stevens puts it is in even sadder than that. He says, I didn't even make my own mistakes. I can't even claim I had the dignity of making my own mistakes. He has become, We he comes to realize something of a one-dimensional person, he's, or put it this way, he's sacrificed a part of the self that is integral to dignity. And this is the great irony. So there are these two notions of dignity at work, and um, they collide. The first notion is the notion with which Stevens begins, and it's the notion of dignity as being unruffled, imperturbable, perfect composure. Nothing can unsettle this butler. He tells a story to exemplify this notion of dignity. It's a story that was recounted to him by his father, who was also a butler. It's a story of a butler in colonial India who one day discovers a tiger under the dining room table, assures his employer, no problem, I'll deal with this. And an hour later, the tiger has been removed from the dining room and no traces of the tiger's presence remain. So it's a kind of impossible degree of dignity, just there might be a tiger, or there might be a huge emotion or a crisis, but it will not be allowed to make dinner late or to dirty the dining room. This is the dignity of, with which Stevens begins. There's another notion of dignity that's raised and voiced in the novel by just a rural character named Harry Smith, and he says, well, 
England fought in the war for liberty and democracy, and we all have dignity. Every Englishman has the dignity of having a voice and having agency. This is a very different kind of dignity, and it's the notion of dignity that Stevens comes to fill. He has sacrificed. Sometimes you've just got to speak up. That's right. So the butler's dignity comes at the cost of the emotional life. Political or moral dignity means you've got to sacrifice maybe peace or composure. You've got to take a risk, but you've got to speak up and take that chance. So, Lorraine, Stevens has led this life of missed opportunities. Do we pity him? Should we pity him? The writer Salman Rushdie has said of this novel that the real story is that of a man destroyed by the ideas upon which he has based his life. And I think that perfectly sums up his tragedy. So I would say, yes, we do pity Stevens with a kind of fear and trembling, as Aristotle says we should do when we're confronted with a tragic hero. By his own final admission, by submitting his moral or political agency entirely to Lord Darlington, Stevens has missed the opportunity to make his own mistakes. And he's also missed the life he might have known with the woman he loved, who loved him too. So I do believe there's a degree of pity, not pity in the sense of condescension, pity in the sense of there but for the grace of God go I. The book is organized by this journey. You, you, it takes six days. The chapters are sorted out this way. The book, I should say, is, is, is pleasingly short. My, my edition is 245 pages. It's not a long book. And on the journey, he's having these reflections. He's meeting characters. But what is he heading towards? We know it's Miss Kenton who now is Mrs. Ben. What happens when he gets there? This would be, of course, Stephen's chance to exercise his voice and regain a sense of self. And when he, when he meets Mrs. Ben, uh, they have tea and they talk and they have a wonderful time reminiscing. He fills her in on the fate of various figures connected with Darlington Hall, with whom she's lost touch. And he tentatively broaches the possibility that she might come back to Darlington Hall as a housekeeper. It turns out that she's reunited with her husband. Her daughter is expecting a child. She wouldn't want to leave the West Country. And, you know, without any, um, without considering it or having any real hesitation, Mrs. Ben declines to come with him. So we're waiting for this moment where one of them says, I've always loved you, and then I've always loved you too, and they have this this romance now, and they move into the future, but that's not what happens at all. That's not what happens. Although, he waits with her for her bus at the end of their afternoon together, and he says, forgive me, and it's about as open or personal as he ever becomes. He says, forgive me, but in your letters over the years, you've mentioned these separations from your husband. Can you assure me that you're quite happy? Will you be well? And Miss Kenton says, well, yes, I love my husband. I didn't at first, but I do now. And every once in a while, I get restless, and I get unhappy, and I leave. And she says, it's because I imagine other lives I might have led. I imagine the life I might have led with you, Mr. Stevens. And that is the admission that we've been looking for and longing for. But it comes, of course, in the context of it cannot be. It might have been, but it wasn't, and it's too late. And that's at the end of the novel, but it's not at the very, very end of the novel. That's right. There's one more really important encounter 
that Stevens must have before the book can finish. Lorraine, what happens at the end? He goes to a pier by the seaside. He has two days left in his week's holiday, and he's heard that this is a beautiful place. Of course, he goes without company. But he, he, he goes out onto this um, pier, and he, he sits on a bench, and it's twilight. Uh, these lights come on along the walkway, and he's heard from the locals that this is a beautiful sight. So he sits and looks at the sea and waits for the lights to come on, and he find, another man sits down next to him. Turns out this man is a retired butler, and they chat a little bit about this and that. And pretty soon you gather from the other man's reactions that Stevens is weeping. He doesn't admit that. And again, with, often with Stevens' emotions, you, you capture them through the responses of others. He's weeping. And he, he confesses to this man. And this is the counterpart to Miss Kenton saying, I would have loved a life with you, Mr. Stevens. He confesses to this man I've wasted my life. I haven't even made my own mistakes. He owns up to the truth. And this is the greatest moment in the novel. And this is why it's a heartbreaking novel, because in so many ways, it's too late. And there's an epiphany, though. He seems to learn something at the end from this stranger. He confesses to a stranger in this weird way where sometimes people will share their most intimate feelings with people they've never met before. And Stevens is doing this with this guy who's, who's name he's unnamed. We don't even know right. this guy's name. He's unburdening himself. He's saying all these things. And then this guy gives Stevens a bit of wisdom. He says, you know, many people feel that the evening is the nicest part of the day. So metaphor alert, <laughs> the evening is the best part of the day, says the stranger, as, 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 as evening descends upon the scene. We've been heading to the west the whole time, you know, toward the sunset. Uh, what are we to make of this final moment then? It offers a degree of hope. And there's hope in the fact that Stevens is confronting honestly his own past life, because that is the kind of dignity he's been missing. The dignity of looking at the truth, the dignity of knowledge and uh, honest assessment. Maybe he'll hire a new housekeeper when he gets back to Darlington Hall. Maybe she'll become a love interest. The movie flirts with this possibility a little bit. Ishiguro doesn't really plant it in our minds. In fact, we know from little details we've picked up early on that Stevens is aging and he's becoming a little bit less able, a little bit less perfect and accomplished in his tasks. This was his father's fate. And so there's something fearful in that and kind of dying alone and having to give up the only role that's given meaning to his life. But as I say, there's a new dignity that's dawning here. There's a new knowledge and self-awareness. And um, Ishiguro certainly permits us to hope that Stephen's last years will be ones of a new sort of pleasure and fulfillment. And in this sense, after this heartbreaking finish, this really sad finish, we, we do end on a note of optimism. Maybe something good will happen to Stevens. Now he's kind of equipped for something good to happen to him. That's right. Now tell us, Lorraine, a little bit about the author, Kazuo Ishiguro. He won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 2017. So that's a pretty big deal. He's British, but he was born in Japan and moved to the UK at the age of five. So that's kind of interesting. But what else should we know about this guy and how he came to write this book? It's the first 
of his books that is set in England, although he grew up mainly, as you say, in England. Um, His first two novels are set in Japan. His mother is from Nagasaki, survived the bomb, and that might help explain to some degree the way that the Second World War seems to haunt his imagination in some of his early works. In fact, all his first three novels all have to do with the background of the Second World War. But Ishiguro was mainly raised in British schools. He speaks English uh, m- you know, much more comfortably than he speaks Japanese. Uh, but he retains, I think, a little bit of an outsider's perspective on English culture and maybe even on the English language. In fact, he's talked about how he feels perfectly fluent conversing in English, but when he's writing, especially when he's using idiom and um, that kind of thing, he has to choose his words carefully. And he says, I think maybe this helps me as a writer. So he certainly is a writer of great beauty and of great dignity, both, of course, English culture and Japanese culture, value, duty, and honor, and responsibility. And I think that helps to explain some of his thematic concerns in many of his novels. And the outsider status may help him see things more clearly about Britain, right? This is like Tocqueville coming to America. The French guy comes to the United States and he sees all sorts of things about our own country that we couldn't see as plainly as he does. Is that what Kazuo Ishiguro is doing with Britain? I believe so. Very much so. This is a message from our friends at American Habits from the State Policy Network. We the people, do you ever think about what that means and what happened to it? We the people certainly did not mean an imperial city full of unelected bureaucrats deciding everything from kindergarten curricula to nursing home funding formulas. We the people mean self-government, a free people deciding most things in their families and communities and delegating some authority to their towns and states while passing along just a small amount of that power to the national government. How did things get so upside down at American Habits? We tell stories of real people with real solutions, all working to restore federalism and self-government. If you're a public official, come get involved. If you're a citizen, come and see the new standard for American leadership. No matter who you are, come help us renew the forgotten but not lost habit of American self-government. Visit AmericanHabits.org to learn more. That's AmericanHabits.org. Lorraine, a lot of people came to this novel, The Remains of the Day, because they saw the movie. The the novel, The Remains of the Day, published in 1989, very quickly made into a movie, 1993. It's a film starring Anthony Hopkins, Emma Thompson, very well regarded when it came out. I should say, first of all, you like the movie, right? You recommend it? I do. How good is it, and how well does it capture the novel? One particular thing I would mention is... Anthony Hopkins and Emma Thompson, seeing them together, I think, brings the chemistry alive. And while in the movie you miss hearing, overhearing Stephen's thoughts, the way that Anthony Hopkins can capture this suppressed emotion, just with the movement of an eyelid or a gesture of his mouth, just the tiniest things. I mean, this is not a big dramatic role. He can't, he can't chew the scenery, so to speak, not that Anthony Hopkins ever does that, but just in the quietest, quietest ways, you get this emotion dramatized. And I think it just kind of brings it home in a way that is really touching. A lot of people came to this great novel through the movie. In other words, they saw the movie first, and then they said, I should probably go read the book. 
What's your story? How did you discover this writer and this novel? It might be worth saying it did win the Booker Prize, The Remains of the Day, when it came out in 1989, and that's a pretty significant um, prize. But I came to it through my high school English teacher. Thank you, Mr. Purse. He assigned it to us senior year, and I thought it was rather boring and quiet, I confess. And that's why we can never rest with our high school education. We learn its value 20 or 30 years later. I picked it up to reread it, and it is such a masterpiece, such a gem. Perhaps it is a novel that requires a degree of age to really appreciate because it has to do with this knowledge that the day is not an endless day and that it has to do with the way we're haunted in some ways by our memories and the way that our lives turn out differently than we imagined they might have done. Maybe high schoolers aren't keen on that yet, but but I'm grateful that this great work was introduced to me. And in fact, over the years, I've become um, an immense admirer of Ishiguro, and I've read a couple other of his novels. Each one is different, I will say, and brilliant in its own way. This is an author well worth knowing. Every word that he writes is carefully chosen. And the other thing I love, I mean, his books are beautiful. He writes beautifully. He brings up these questions that really get to the core of who we are as human beings. And he brings them up from different angles in different works. But always you come away from one of his novels thinking, this has made me think and this has made me feel. And it's also been a wonderful reading experience. Is there a particular case for reading it right now? Maybe for us as Americans in the 2020s, it can feel distant. This is another world with big houses and butlers and so forth. And we can immerse ourselves in that and appreciate it. But does this does this work, which is a great book, does this work have a special message for us today? Absolutely. This is not escaping into some idyllic English past by any means. I think it does have a special relevance, and that's because we're so awash in information and we're so overwhelmed by international crises, and we we may feel so helpless. What can I do about any of this? And we may succumb to the temptation, I know I've been guilty of this, of saying, it's too much for me to think about, it's too much for me to manage, I'll just put my head down and do my little piece and not worry about the rest. And this novel kind of prods you out of that, out of the comfort you might feel in that, and and forces us all maybe to admit, yes, the big scheme of things is more than we can master, but there's a dignity in trying to connect our lives with that. And that's a dignity that's worth fighting for. So in that sense, this is a book well worth reading right now. But it's a timeless question. How might I waste my life? How could I keep from wasting my life? And in that sense, it's a timeless and a beautiful and a heartbreaking book. Lorraine Murphy, thanks so much for joining us and telling us all about The Remains of the Day by Kazuo Ishiguro. It's been my great pleasure. Thank you for having me, John. You've just listened to The Great Books Podcast, a production of National Review. Please subscribe to The Great Books Podcast and leave reviews of the show. That helps us keep this podcast going. Send me your ideas for future episodes. You can reach me through my website at haymiller.com on Twitter. My handle is at haymiller. Last of all, special thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of The Great Books Podcast.